Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming up. On ABC Radio. History is completely subjective in the way it is recorded. Uh, obviously, the colonising nations around the world have recorded history and it's very different to the way in which colonised peoples remember and record history. So I realised that. And I also realised that I had a responsibility as, you know, the first person in my family to go to university and learn the skills for researching and writing to do something about that. The importance and prominence of First Nations literature and Dark as Last Night, the latest offering from writer Tony Birch. Myself and my brothers and sisters, five of us, grew up in an extremely violent home. So for this story, Dark as Last Night, it's in no way um, directly autobiographical. But I think what I'm doing is trying to make sense of that world that really frames so much of my life. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Over the past month, there have been a number of events highlighting the importance of storytelling as part of contemporary Australian culture. Last month, we celebrated National Book Week with the theme Old Worlds, New Worlds and Other Worlds, and following that, Indigenous Literacy Day on the 1st of September. To mark the day, the Indigenous Literacy Foundation held a series of online forums providing an insight into the diversity, richness and multifaceted cultures of First Nations communities. With this in mind, tonight we're bringing you some insights into the motivations and processes employed by two of the country's best-known First Nations authors. Coming up, you'll hear from multi-award winning author, activist and academic Tony Birch, but first... Anita Heiss. As well as an award-winning author, Anita is a staunch and vocal ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. She's long advocated for the benefits of literacy as a tool to strengthen and even revitalise culture through the art of storytelling in First Nations communities. This is no more evident than in her latest offering, Bila Yaradungalangdere. Anita, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you so much for having me, or I should say my language, Mandangu. Thank you. Now, I want to get into this amazing book you've written, but I thought just to get us started, I might ask how you became a writer. Wow. Yes. So as we get older, you have to think so far back. Um <laughs> I, look, I need I need your listeners to know I never imagined that one day I'd be talking to you about having, you know, writing novels and so forth because I didn't read as a child. I was a pen pal. I liked to write stories through letters and so forth. But I was inspired to write my first book after I was at university, UNSW, doing my undergraduate degree on the 1967 referendum and having to read all my course outlines were basically non-Indigenous people in Australian history writing about Aboriginal Australia. And so I got one book off the shelf. I think it was 1990 or 1901 that was uniquely titled Australian Aborigines and it was written by someone who in Great Britain, it was based on letters that somebody in New South Wales would write to them, today we did this with the natives and today we did that with the natives, you know, that very documentary style gaze and lens and voice. And one day five Aboriginal men took this fella hunting and they left him for a short period of time and only four returned. So he assumed they ate the fifth one and writes this letter back to Britain saying the natives are cannibals because five went away and four came back. So obviously they ate the fifth one. And I was horrified. I thought this is written now as a history book and here's this one moment in time where someone's perceived cannibalism in Aboriginal culture as something which I had never heard of before and didn't hear of again until Pauline Hanson had a voice, and that's another conversation. And I realised at that moment in time that, one, that history is completely subjective in the way it is recorded, and that uh, obviously the colonising nations around the world have recorded history and it's very different to the way in which colonised peoples remember and record history. So I realised that. And I also realised that I had a responsibility as, you know, the first person in my family to go to university and learn the skills for researching and writing to do something about that. So I wrote my first book, Sacred Cows, which was really just a send-up of Australian culture and Skippy and Veggie on it and so forth, not knowing back then that I would write more. My first writing job was actually at Streetwise Comics between 1992 and 94. I wasn't very good at that, Larissa, because 
in comics, there's not very many words. And I, <laughs> and I, you know, you've known me for a long time. I'm not short of a word. So I wasn't very good at the comic script writing, but through doing that and learning about different ways of telling stories and different ways of getting important information out. So those comics were for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with low literacy skills to teach them about opportunities through education and training, but also their legal rights and so forth in ways that they might not pick up a brochure or a book or even a phone book, but they'll read a comic. So I guess that's, you know, how I started. Now, I've known you for a very long time and you've always had a very strong sense of who you are. And I wonder if you could share with us who or what shaped your worldview as a Wiradjuri woman? I have to say hands down, it's, you know, from childhood till today, it's obviously my mum with the support of my father because interestingly people would say, strangers even would say, how can you be an Aborigine if your father's Austrian? And throughout my entire life I always recognised that the only person who never asked me that was my father because, you know, love was unconditional and he loved my mum unconditionally. And they both, though from completely different cultural backgrounds, my father was absorbed and brought into and loved in my mum's family and community. And, you know, they didn't sit me down when I was a child and say, you're Wiradjuri, you're this, you're that. They were there, though, to pick up the pieces when I suffered racism and explained to me, I was five, mum said I was brown because I'd been kissed by the sun. But when I was old enough to understand, it was always about them saying be strong and proud of who you are and always backed me up with whatever I needed to do. And they both had incredibly strong work ethics coming from poor families and very strong family values. And those strong family values are very much Wiradjuri values as well. So I'd have to say that they created the person that I am today. Your new book is stunning. I have to say I've read it twice and I think it's, you know, it's really you at the height of your storytelling powers. Billa Yara Dangalangdere is a fascinating story that's steeped in history. What drew you to the story? Yeah, so the story, interesting. So in 2017, it was the 165th anniversary of the Great Flood of Gundagai, which is known as one of Australia's largest, most devastating natural disasters, most definitely the largest devastating flood at a time when a third of the town drowned over three days, which is quite extraordinary. And the town was about 250 population. And when I learned this story and the story of Yadi and Jackie Jackie, who were two Wiradjuri men who went out on canoes uh, with Long Jimmy and Tommy Davis, but Yari and Jackie Jackie both saved lives during those, those three days of raging torrential rains and floods and so forth. And when I learned this story, I thought to myself, how is it that all Australians do not know this story? This is something the world should know. And literally six months later, I started going to Charles Sturt University in Wagga Wagga and learning my Wiradjuri language with Uncle Stan Grant and all of his protégés. And then I realised that, you know, I needed to write something about the flood because these heroes needed to be in our nation's literary landscape and it, then every lesson I had and every story I learned and every time I went out on country in the floodplains of Wagga Wagga or I stood in the river, the Murrumbidgee, Murrumbidgee Billa, I got ideas and I, I started to imagine what it must have been like for my ancestors living on that land through every season and I also wanted at the same time, to tell a story about what it was like for women in particular, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal women living on the land in Wiradjuri country in the mid-1800s. One of the things that comes through really strongly in your book is that sense of landscape. And when you listen to how you sort of almost sung that up by standing there, it's, it's really easy to understand why it's so strong in the book. What other research did you undertake to pull it together? I went back to Wagga, I guess over two years. I was in Wagga eight or nine times. I went to Gundagai a number of times as well. I spent time in the Gundagai Library, the museum. I walked the streets of Gundagai and along the river, which is dry in many parts. There's a lot of monuments to our heroes now. And I spent time in the museum there and reading a whole lot of material that had been documented around the flood in particular in newspaper articles and so forth. I had Miriam Crane, who manages the Kudamundra Gundagai Tourism Office there 
read drafts. She's the font of knowledge in terms of history there. And I had Ani Sony Piper, who's like our matriarch and Brungle, read the material around Brungle and so forth as well. I spent time in Wagga Library, who were just extraordinary in terms of offering assistance for, you know, material that's already been documented. I, through my language lessons, we spent a lot of the class, you know, lessons happen in the classroom, but they happen, you know, by the river, they happen down in the floodplains. We go and look at sites, we look, look at scar trees. So I heard stories of significant places. Not everything ends up in the novel because not everything's for the public domain, as, as you would know. But to be honest with you, I could not have written that book if I was not down there, if I was not sitting in yarning circles or in sitting just with my, you know, galang with all the other Wiradjuri women who forced me to, you know, answer questions in language, use the dictionary in the app when I have to. In my class, I'm probably at the lowest rung of understanding, the slowest learner. But, I, you know, I spoke to a gentleman, Ian Horsley, who his great-great-grandfather was saved by Yari in the flood. So, I, you know, I actually spoke to direct descendants of people there and I had drafts read by my peers as well, Rebecca Connolly and Letitia Harris and Arnie Elaine Lomas. And so I feel very fortunate because I had access to a whole lot of knowledge and wisdom and land that I could stand on. And when you fly into Wiradjuri country, I always took photos. So I had an idea of what it looked like from the sky. I had, you know, driving across the landscape. I could see right rolling hills. I could see that the land was very similar in Wagga to Gundagai so that when Wagadine arrives, she can know that she's still on Wiradjuri country. Wagadine to me feels like a new heroine of literature and I was wondering how you created her. That's really interesting, Larissa, because, you know, well, you would know this as a writer. You don't sit down saying, like, I'm going to create this character and she's going to be a heroine. Who Wagadine is to me is that she is a composite of all the women that I know not just Wiradjuri women, but Aboriginal women who have faced adversity and remained dignified. You know, she's a composite of all the resilient, the intelligent, hardworking, spiritual and strong, particularly Wiradjuri women that I not only know today but have known in the past. And I think she embodies all the values that I was raised to have and all the values, the Wiradjuri values that we talk about when I'm down there with, you know, my class and with my me gun and my family and so forth. The thing too that I think is remarkable, we hear how much research has gone into this, you know, how much you really delved into these moments of history. And yet I think it's a remarkable credit that when you're reading the book, the history's there, but you don't get bogged down in it. Sometimes when you're reading a book that's based in history, the author can't help but give you so many details. Your book is so character-driven, especially if you count the landscape as a character, which I do. I feel like it's really alive. How do you ensure that balance? How do you make sure that the book remains character-led and you don't get distracted by all of these wonderful bits of history that you're learning? Well, thank you for that observation. It's so funny because you see things that I hadn't thought about before. So we're thinking about that now. I think, well, there's probably more characters in this novel than there's been in any of my novels previously. There's a number of different points of view. So we can see also, which hasn't happened before, so we can see life on the landscape. And I think you're correct, the landscape is a character as well because it has a life of its own and a purpose and a role of its own and the river as well. I think what I try to do with all my novels is to have characters that appear so authentic, whether they're humanitarians or villains, whether they were Adri or whether they're, you know, white fellas, I want to have characters that are so authentic that readers will connect with them to either their values or to some of their behaviours, to their opinions, to some of their dialogue. And so I try to give characters distinct personalities. And I think, you know, for this novel, you can't always have, and I learnt this through writing Paris Dreaming because I had everybody up in arms about the French banning the burqa. And my editor at the time said, you can't have everybody 
thinking the same way, Anita, because, you know, obviously I wanted the world to think like me. And she said, because the world's not like that. And she's absolutely right. So then when you can have the character like James Bradley or David Bradley or someone who actually behaves in an appalling way, that way you can have the characters say and do all the things that Anita Heiss wouldn't say or do or Larissa Brent wouldn't say or do or we hope, you know, the men in our lives wouldn't say or do. But it's important to actually cover, cover off all those different traits that we see and all those different voices that we see in society because if we're talking about truth-telling, which this novel is aiming to do, then the truth is people did behave appallingly as well on, you know, Rodri country, well, everywhere around the country during that time. So basically I'm trying to create characters that people can see as absolutely authentic. What are you hoping that your readers will take away from this book? Because there are a lot of themes in there. I think whether I'm writing historical fiction for young people, like The Diary of Mary Talents or Our Race for Reconciliation, or writing for older people, I do it because I believe that when we understand our past, we better understand our present. And I think Australia is still coming to terms with the realities of Aboriginal experiences throughout this country, throughout history, and how that plays out for us today. The way that we grieve for being off country, the issues around having pride and identity when you may not know where your family is from because you were forced off traditional lands or you were removed and disconnected through acts of policies of protection and acts of policies of assimilation, or you may be the product of an act of violence through in history at the hands of white settlers. And I think that's important for people to understand that, you know, Aboriginal people have diverse histories, some of them incredibly painful. I hope that readers take away a greater respect for the role our people have played in working the land, a greater understanding of what country means to us. And although we've been forced to become resilient over decades of facing adversity, that we are still incredibly proud. I hope that the story might contribute to the conversation around the lack of statues that recognise our warriors and leaders. And when I say our warriors, I mean Yari and Jackie Jackie are Australian heroes. Yes, they were Rajri, but they saved Australian lives. They should not just be thought of as, you know, heroes of Aboriginal people. They should be heroes of all Australians. And we look at the enormous number of statues that celebrate, you know, colonisers and colonial events that don't tell the full story uh, and don't necessarily include First Nations peoples and our role in the shared history of this country. So I'm happy to be honest, Larissa. My goal with any, any, you know, not for want of a better word, lesson is that people walk away having learned one thing, you know, just one thing that they didn't know when they started the book. This book does feel like a form of truth-telling. How important is that process to you? Well, I think one of the things I've learned, I learned back at uni was that, you know, truth and history is completely subjective and that my truth is different to the next person's and the colonizer's truth is different to the colonized people's truths, which is why I try to write our version or some version of our history and our or my version of what life is like for many of us today. Um, instead of readers always having to see us through an observer's gaze, there's a quote by an Indian author, said guru i hope i've pronounced that correctly and it's truth is not for comfort it's for liberation for me i think truth telling is a form of liberation it's empowering liberating not only for us but for those who are hearing the truth and wanting the truth so for me it's about liberating readers and giving them capacity to be free to know the full story the book is set in the 1850s and really shows through the storytelling the relationship between the coloniser and the First Nations people. And it's really easy to draw lines between the period that you're looking at in the book and what's happening to the characters and the contemporary issues facing First Nations people today. What are your thoughts on a treaty and the extent to which it might shift this relationship? Okay, well, I'm going to start with the fact that, in case your listeners don't know, that Kevin Gilbert wrote a draft treaty back in 1987. So the contemporary conversation has been happening for decades. Obviously, more recently, we've had the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which called for a First Nations voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution and a, a Makarata Commission, which would, uh, you, know, you know, evolve a process of, you know, making treaties, resolving conflict and so forth. And now I wasn't at the dialogues that led to the Uluru Statement. 
And I know there are many people who do not agree with the process, but for my part, I trust those with the legal expertise that they know what they're doing and I and I support the statement and a treaty and its requests. And I think my novel highlights that some of the conversations we're having today around rights to land, around rights to freedom, around rights to have a say in our affairs, around sovereignty and so forth, those conversations have been happening for a long time. So I hope that readers then come to understand that we are also exhausted by these conversations. But clearly, if we look at these conversations that have been happening since in the novel set in the 1850s and they're happening now, that we're not giving up. One of the key relationships in the book is between Wagadine and Louisa, and through that storyline, we see all of the complexities of the relationships between Aboriginal women and white women in that colonial context, and a lot of that taking place in the domestic sphere. What reflections do you have on that relationship? Hmm. I think I'm a lot like Wagadine, and, and, and possibly you are too, and other Aboriginal women listening to the show in that I've had my fair share of Louises in my life and they are well-meaning non-Aboriginal women who have genuine affection and respect for me as their friend, as Louisa had for Wagadine, you know, respect as a confidant or an employee who claimed to be on our side, as Louisa did with Wagadine and wanting to work for rights, but, you know, rights for Aboriginal people. And in terms of the changes that need to be made in society back then and today, but when push come to shove, their actions do not reflect their intentions or their lip service. And then when you have no further use to them, then they quietly fade away from your world. And sometimes, not always, more often than not, there's this what's in it for me in terms of the friendships they seek. So Louisa genuinely loved and cared for Wagadine. I have no doubt about that. And I, I wrote Louisa. I know that she cared and loved Wagadine, but she essentially denied her her freedom which she had the power to give her because in the end it was still about what Louisa wanted for herself, her own needs and happiness that drove her to turn a blind eye to the fact that she was denying Wagadine her freedom. I just think this book is going to start so many conversations. You've used your voice for a range of important issues and one that is obviously very close to your heart is literacy. Tell us about your work in that sphere and why this has been such a focus for you. It's interesting because I'm a lifetime ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. I've been an ambassador with them, I think, since about 2008, which scares me because that means it's a long time ago when we're all getting older. Well, you must have been 12. I was an embryo. <laughs> and, um, and I guess my role is really about raising awareness and funding for the ILF, which is completely free of government funding, which means it has also complete sovereignty to just do what communities ask for in terms of community-based literacy programs and projects and books in language and so forth and, you know, book supply. And um, I guess what I'm trying to do in my role is to not only encourage a love of reading and writing with our young people, but to help them craft their own stories, inspire them to read more, but also, and it's not rocket science, our people need to see ourselves on the, themselves on the page. So I think moving forward though, I mean, we've been going for a long time now, I would hope in the years to come that the Indigenous Literacy Foundation is not necessary and that perhaps it just becomes a publishing arm because our people have adequate resources and the, the federal government actually puts up the coin for what should be happening anyway because these students in remote communities are Australian citizens and should be resourced like every other Australian student, you know, around the country. My next question to you was, what's your advice for somebody out there who's wondering whether they can write a book or not? Okay. Well, if you're listening out there in Radio Land tonight, the first thing I'd say is read widely in whatever the genre is you want to write in, whether it's a kid's book or a memoir or sci-fi, whatever genre it is that you want to write in, you need to read really widely in that genre to see how stories unfold on the page in that genre to help you find your voice for the story you want to tell. I would suggest to you the first thing you do is you write a synopsis. I learned this late in life, but it's changed my capacity to write. So it's write a 1,000 words, pull it back to 300 words, then 25 words for your lift pitch. You need to know what the story is before you even try writing it. So write a synopsis, and trust me, it will make it that much easier. I'm a plotter. 
So I'm going to suggest that you map your story out like an essay plan for the entire book. And if you already think this is too much work, then you don't have it in you to write a book because this is what it takes. Then to go and do your research, make a list of all the people you might need to interview, any newspapers you might need to access, where you may need to visit, make a list of all the things you're going to need to do to get all the information to write your story. And then I'm going to say, sit down, write, 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 set yourself a goal every day. It might be a thousand words a day. Maybe it's 500 words a day. Give yourself the privilege, the pleasure, the right to find time to do the writing, to find yourself a nice place to do it. I like going to a library to do it and write. And then before you send your book off to anybody, get a structural edit done on it. Don't give it to your best friend or your boyfriend or your mother to read unless they're an editor because they all love you and they're going to tell you it's fantastic. But what you need is you need the eyes of somebody who knows how to read for publication if you want your book to get published. Well, a masterclass on writing a book from Anita Heise. Finally okay. tonight, what's next for Anita Heise? <sighs> taking all of August off to sleep. No, I'm working on Titters, the play, so we're adapting the novel that was came out in 2014 through Simon & Schuster and that's now being produced by Le Bois Theatre here in Brisbane and hopefully we'll see that live in March of next year. So I've written a fairly good draft of that. Coming out through Magabala Books um, next year will be Growing Up Wiradjuri, which I've done with about a dozen elders of my elders in, in Wagga Wagga. I started as a community development project out of my language course and very excited about that. I've done a draft novel for middle grades around in working title Koori Princess for a young girl who thinks she's a Koori Princess and that'll come out through Mangabala Books um, next year and a new edition of Am I Black Enough For You? Just working on the edit for that, that through Penguin Random House will come out in 2022 and toying with the idea of doing a kid's picture book of The Great Flood as a, a spin-off from Billy Yadadangalandre. Well, you have just left us all feeling like we're underachievers there, Anita. But it's also yeah. good to know there'll be more books coming out and we'll have you back on speaking out to talk about them. But thank you so much for being with us this evening. Thank you so much, Larissa. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. Tonight we're celebrating the importance and prominence of First Nations literature with award-winning authors Anita Heiss and Tony Birch. Right now, though, some music from Thelma Plum. Here she is with one of her most popular releases, Homecoming Queen. Be the boss of this town 
Thelma Plum there with Homecoming Queen, a song taken from her album Better in Black. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Dark as Last Night is the latest offering from critically acclaimed writer Tony Birch. A collection of short stories, the book highlights the importance of human connection at pivotal moments in our lives, whether those occur through the loss of a loved one or the uncertainties of childhood. One of our most prolific writers, Tony has used his talents to draw attention to social justice issues affecting Indigenous Australians and the environment. His novels include Blood, Shadow Boxing and Ghost River. His book, The White Girl, was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award. I caught up with Tony recently to discuss his latest work, but began our conversation by asking about another book he has published this year, a collection of poetry titled Whisper Songs. So Whisper Songs is a collection of poetry which is um, about the deeply personal and issues of race in Australia and also looking at issues of ecology. I'll read you a poem from the collection, which is a poem titled Away, which is a uh, a memorial to the stolen generations. Warmed hollow of a shared bed, a place where you once rested, is away. Your breath singing, rising through morning air to fill the rooms of houses, the life of you, away. Fingerprints marking time on a kitchen table, scars on a door frame, a bicycle wheel creaking its windmill in the yard. A mother's hands sweeping through locks of hair to untangle and savour. Away. And along a dusty road running away from home to where secrets are held in ghosting whispers, your crying feet leave no dance. Away. Lovely. Thank you. Well, that, you. that was from Whisper Songs, if people are uh, keen to um, read more of your poetry, which I'm sure they will be after hearing that. Those lovely words. But let's turn to Dark as Last Night now, which is your fourth book of short stories, I think. Yes, that's right. I hope I don't embarrass you too much here, but I was obviously looking at some of the comments of reviewers from your book because it's uh, just come out and people are engaging with it. And I just wanted to share this one from um, one of the reviewers, which is uh, Geordie Williamson in the Saturday paper. And she described you like this... um, he writes, stories as Ernest Hemingway suggested a true practitioner of the craft should, with the devotion of a priest and the guts of a burglar. But he also shares with the great modernist a determination to winnow in essentials, perhaps because he was raised in straightened circumstances. Birch has become adept at making do with less. Now, you'd have to be happy with that, I would have thought. Yeah, I've actually just got that tattooed on my back today, <laughs> actually. Yeah, and I'm very happy. Um, Geordie's um, always been really supportive of my work 
and in fact i've i've been generally um very fortunate that my work is is generally well reviewed and and this book has had some really um really generous um reviews well from my own experience i think it's earned it but i just love this um observation here and wondered if you could speak to a little bit more about the idea that it's your straightened circumstances or your upbringing which has made you or helped craft you as a writer and i wonder what your reflections on that are Certainly has helped craft me as a writer. I think Geordie was inferring that the economy of one's life and maybe, you know, not having much means that you don't need to use much words. That's not the case. I would say that the experiences, the content and the type of stories that I write are certainly influenced by my upbringing and my life. In this book, though, I would say it's not so much that the stories are directly autobiographical, which which they're not. It's more that the way that I grew up and my, I suppose, my values influences what I write about and the type of characters that I produce. In regard to the technique, I do produce fiction using a quite economical style. Uh, it's quite deliberate, but it's not the only way I write. So as, as you probably know, I I, I do essays, I've, I've written academic work, which is very different. I just feel with writing fiction and poetry in particular, I do believe that less is, is more. I don't like to clutter the page and I like to be fairly direct in, in my prose. I think that's because I, I really have faith in, in readers. I believe that I'm in a, an equal partnership and a relationship with readers and I like to let the page have space to breathe and it's a place that the reader, I think, fills in some of those spaces and it's the way that I, I, I like to write. I think it's not that I, I could write, I, I think, in a, with a more, a fuller palette and I, I have in other genres, but, um, for my fiction, it just doesn't suit what I'm trying to do. It's, you know, I think it's, it's such an achievement of craft when you can read a story that, you know, and it goes, over several pages and in that you get these really rich characters and your book is full of these great characters like Little Red, Jack Garrett, Robert Moses, Raylene and the school librarian, Miss Costa. Um, they were some of mine, but can you share with us throughout the anthology who some of your favourite characters are? And, and they're not necessarily the lead characters. They're often, the ones I've picked as being really vivid are often secondary characters, but are there some there that have particularly stood out to you and where are you getting your inspiration from them? Well, I think with this book, there are several stories that have young females, teenage girls as the protagonists who are either the main character or in some instances not so. So certainly in the um, the lead story, the title story, Dark as Last Night, the, the girl in that story is the, the, yeah, she's a protagonist, but two other stories in particular, the story Flight, where an older sister goes to the aid of a younger brother, um, Nish, who's being bullied, and the uh, sisters in the story Manger, um, these are young teenager, even you know, girls who are barely teenagers. And what I like about those four characters, those young females, is their, their tenacity, their feistiness, their cheek. So in Manger's, the, the, the older sister's quite cheeky. So I like writing, or I have liked writing recently, female characters who are very feisty and very upfront. And I think it's interesting that in um, my last novel, The White Girl, we had, a, of course, a 13-year-old Aboriginal girl in that story, Sissy. She's a lovely character to write, but she was you know, quieter. She's quite dependent on her really strong grandmother, Odette Brown. And I, I was thinking after I wrote The White Girl and started to write these stories, it's almost that these young girls are are versions of Sissy who just have a little bit more front in them. So it's a bit like she's come out of the shadow of her grandmother. So I particularly enjoyed writing them. I suppose a, a character that I felt deep attachment to was Bobby Moses, the old Aboriginal guy in that story set um, on a highway or, or certainly set in a rural um, regional setting. I love that story because he's a man who's been displaced from country who has the affront to go back towards a white town and demand that he be able to visit his home country. And I love Bobby because he's also a bit wily and a bit cheeky, but he's also very, very dignified. So he has a confrontation um, with a local policeman, which turns into almost like a, a minor friendship. And I like the way that um, he negotiates his um, right to country with that policeman, which I think is it's about an Aboriginal man knowing 
the rules of the game and having to work around them to get what he wants. So I, I really enjoyed him. To be honest, I think that writing Bobby Moses in the sense of the type of character, I'm a really good friend with, with Jackie Charles, and I think there's a bit of Jack Charles in, in that character. And I did say to Jack, if we ever get to, to film Bobby Moses, it's a walk-up Missouri that he'd be, the, <laughs> he'd be the, he'd play Bobby. So, so I re- really liked him. I think he, he I'm, I feel very attached to Bobby Moses. There are a couple of themes in some of the stories you've alluded to, and particularly in the title story that I think run through the book, and I'd just like to draw them out with you a little bit more. There, there is very much a sense that there's quite a lot of uh, stories that are there that are written from a child's perspective as, as opposed to an adult's. And as you mentioned, that idea of a child navigating an adult's world, and you've often placed them in a, you know, in, in a, a a pretty harsh world, you know, uh, just with the title story, for example, uh, Rose or Rosie is navigating a, a home life with a really violent father. These are really difficult things for kids. Why are you drawn as a writer to writing so much from the child's perspective of these worlds? Well, I suppose, I mean, several things. Obviously, that type of story is based on personal experience. So I've never been shied away from talking about the fact that myself and my brothers and sisters, five of us, grew up in an extremely violent home, our home life as children. And I think that clearly has a, a lifetime impact and leaves a mark on you. But by revisiting that type of material, so for this story, Dark Oz the Last Night, it's in no way um, directly autobiographical. But I think what I'm doing is trying to make sense of that world that really frames so much of my life. And also that it's a world that, you know, it's a very contemporary world in the sense that we know domestic violence is unfortunately prevalent in many families in Australia today. And while some people feel the material is a bit tough, I have to be honest and say that in writing this, I I don't feel it doesn't become sort of difficult for me. I don't feel traumatised. I don't need to give myself a trigger warning. I actually feel that this is the reality of my experience and the experience of many kids I knew. So those children who are the protagonists in those stories, what I want to convey, I think, is is one, the terrible hypocrisy of masculinity in Australia, that this is both external and sometimes internal to Aboriginal families, um, not only, of course, to Aboriginal families, but also that children, as you say, navig- navigating these worlds takes enormous courage and it has a an impact and a lifelong imprint on, on those children. So I'm fascinated by the ability of kids to survive these um, experiences. And I would have to say that as now a grandfather with three grandchildren, I actually, it's, a, it's to show the um, complexity, Larissa, and I think to try and convey to your listeners what I'm trying to do here, there is a, a contradiction so that if someone asks me about my personal experience in the characters I write, I don't feel overly emotional about... So when you say, the, you know, it must be horrific for children, I don't remember it being as horrific as I do remember being it as normal, which is sort of horrible in some ways. At the same time, when I look at my grandkids... I can't imagine them having that experience because when when I imagine them having that experience, like you, I think it would be absolutely horrific. And I think it's interesting that when you grow up with violence around you as a child, you have to, to survive it and to be resilient, you have to come up with strategies that in a sense, don't traumatize you. It's a, it's a very complex way of growing up. So yeah, I suppose in some ways I'm, I'm psychologically and creatively and intellectually fixated with those issues because they, they are what has framed me as a person. Yes, there are these, you know, really difficult sort of worlds that people live in where there's a lot of violence. But I think the other theme that comes through really strongly through through the stories as a bit of a thematic you're drawn to is actually how much love there is, particularly between siblings. We've already spoken of a couple of examples, but another one of the, the books, uh, the stories in the book that I really loved was one about called Bicycle Thieves, which is about two brothers and their, and their bicycles. And, um, you know, 
again, it's a story of one sibling standing up for another sibling and, and learning to be brave. Um, that seems to be a really strong uh, theme that you're drawn to in these stories as well, is the, the love between siblings and the sense of having to be brave to stand up for yourself and for them. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's a relative point here is that I don't think in this book and many of my books, when I deal with notions like violence in families, I, I don't focus the camera on it directly. So I don't describe violence. I'm not interested in being voyeuristic. And your point about love, then it becomes essential because what I think my stories are doing and what I hope readers understand and get value from is that the reader will understand that you know, the lives of these children and women are impacted on by violence and surrounded by violence, but it is not their life. Um, their means of survival is, is about love, it is about protection, and, and is about courage and strength. And that is not to romanticise that. I would say again that growing up the way that I did and thinking about the characters and the situations I, I, I write about, it's simply the fact that people must find ways to negotiate and survive these circumstances because there really is no choice. So that, yeah, these children are tenacious, they are quite wily and they're quite loving. And I think that, you know, again, while the stories aren't autobiographical in a direct sense, they are emotionally so that I'm absolutely convinced that these young women, sorry, children in these stories, female children, they are so... Um, similar to my view of my sisters. So I have an older sister, Deb, and a younger sister, Tracy. And I would say my older sister in particular, when I was a, a child, I, she was my hero. I idolized my older sister, who's only 18 months older than me. But, you know, in a sense, she was like a shield who, who protected me both in the home and in the street. And she's a very tough, Brazilian Aboriginal woman and a very loving woman as well. And I think that I'm always reminded of the wonderful um, poem by Alice Walker, the African-American writer, in a, a poem called Women. She There's a couple of lines where, where she writes, these women have fists as well as hands. And I love that line because it reminds me of the women I've grown up amongst who that fist they have to make or had to make is to protect their children and they have these wonderful hands of warmth. And that's the reality of, of the women in my life and the women I like to produce as fictional characters, that they are tough and loving at the same time, and that is a complexity, not a contradiction. Grief runs really powerfully through a couple of other stories I'm thinking of together and a wonderful story in there called Lemonade. Can you tell us about how grief has been a really um, significant motif through these stories? Well, obviously, there are three stories. Um, you mentioned one already, Bicycle Thieves, Lemonade and Afterlife. Those three stories are a direct outcome of the death of my younger brother, very sudden and unexpected death of my younger brother around or a little over two years ago. And none of those stories, again, are strictly autobiographical. And in fact, they're far from it. But in each of those stories, I wanted to convey a great sense of love for my younger brother and, of course, as you've just mentioned, the impact of grief on siblings when a, when, when a younger sibling passes away so violently. And in the story Afterlife, it is about a brother and sister um, cleaning out their younger brother's flat. And what I wanted to convey through that is that through the objects, through the domestic, through the tidying up and you know, getting rid of the mess of death, that these um, adult siblings are able to convey a great sense of love for their brother, but also learn something about their brother that they didn't know, so that and it's something quite pleasant. And I think that th this is about, yeah, we think we know each other so well, and in the event of the death of the younger brother in the story, the older siblings learn something more of their brother, which gives his memory, I think, a much, a much fuller outcome. And the story Lemonade is really important for me because it is a story about grief, but it's a story about guilt and unnecessary guilt. So in that story, the older brother feels so guilty for what we might consider a really minor incident from his childhood when he left his younger brother 
and went off for a swim with his mates down the river and when he comes back after the swim his younger brother is waiting there for him and he feels so guilty about this for many years after and it takes someone else a stranger who he meets to explain to him that that was an expression of love of his younger brother waiting for him meant that his younger brother had great trust in him so those stories on bicycle thieves are really directly about um, wanting to convey or produce a, a memorial to my younger brother without directly telling his story. And the story together, I think, is just a great family story based in part on the death of my grandmother, but more about how families deal with grief of a, a matriarch and how they how they survive it. And I'd say overall, Larissa, that, and I think again for listeners, that when, when we lose a loved one, and we know that in the Aboriginal community it's so important how we grieve and come together, but certainly in other communities as well to pay respect to other communities, is that I think when someone dies unexpectedly it can really fracture or rupture a family because people often feel guilt or they might be angry or they, they're confused. In the case of the deaths that form the basis of these stories, what I can say is that both with the death of my grandmother and the death of my younger brother it actually was the opposite our family was remarkably strong supportive and loving with each other so that if there was anything that came out of those that grieving it was the to indicate how how strong our family is how strong our family is and i i wanted the story together to to convey that strength and that need to be Together, and I, I, yeah, I don't think it's it's a miss to think about this in relationship to the COVID situation and lockdowns that we're facing. To be socially isolated from each other is really has a dramatic impact on us because we need to be with each other to to sustain ourselves emotionally. Now, Tony, can we get you to give us a little reading from uh, Darker's last night to share a little snippet with us and let us know what you've chosen to share with us. Yeah, so I'm actually going to read just the final page of the story Afterlife and we just talked briefly about it. And this is at the end of the day when um, the two adult siblings have finished cleaning the house of their younger brother, Billy, who has passed away quite suddenly. I locked Billy's door behind us and was about to jump on my bike and ride home when I noticed a jade plant sitting on the front porch. I'd never seen a plant that looked so close to death. I pulled it out of its pot and took the dried lumps of clay from the roots. I held it in one hand and straddled the bike. You're not going to take that coat off, Angie said. You'll pass out from heat stress before you get home. You told me that it suits me. I'm leaving it on for a bit longer. Wait, Angie said. She kissed me on the top of my nose. You know you look a little ridiculous, Joe. Billy would have laughed at you. You know that gorgeous laugh he had when he was a kid? Yeah, that laugh, I said. It was so beautiful. Pedalling slowly home, I steered the bike with one hand and held the jade plant in the other. Later that afternoon, I placed the plant in an empty bucket, washed the dried clay away from the roots and carefully took some cuttings from the plant. They felt limp and absent of life. I found some plastic pots and a bag of soil in the shed and planted each one. With a watering can, I gently showered the cuttings. I then went into the house and put the kettle on. Waiting for the water to boil, I sat at the kitchen bench and held the photograph of my brother in one hand, studying Billy's joyous face. I made a cup of tea, went back outside and sat and waited for a garden to grow. That's writer Tony Birch with an excerpt from his latest book, Dark as Last Night. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we profile lawyer and social justice advocate Teela Reid. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. <laughs>